The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Kinesen. Today, I'm grateful to have Jody Wood here on the show as my guest. Jody, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit about your background and your fields? Yeah, of course. So um, I am an artist and I work in across disciplines. I work in video art, performance art, and social practice. And that social practice is my main discipline, um, which is a fairly new um I guess it's a new phrase this type of art has been around for a while but it hasn't always been called social practice so it's really it's an interdisciplinary form of art that looks to collaborations with other fields and it prioritizes direct engagement with its audiences over like a symbolic representation of subject matter so it's if it's engaging with a social issue it's not creating a play or a painting about that issue. It's actually very process-based, engaging with audiences to kind of open up complexities about that social issue. Um, and I think that also one of the things that I've talked to Martha Feynman about a little bit is just the fact that vulnerability theory, it asks questions about our lives. And she has kind of expressed like, it's given me permission too, but she's also expressed that art doesn't have to solve social problems. It can just ask questions and that's its job and that's what it's meant to do. How did you meet Martha Feynman? Well, I was just a fangirl. I just found her. I mean, I, <laughs> I can tell you a little bit about the research that led me there and the work that led me there. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So it's kind of a, I mean, it's a long story a little bit, but I, you know, I was observing things in the work I was doing that I couldn't find reflected in any of the philosophy I was reading until I found her work. And then all of a sudden it was just like, oh my gosh, it was just like finding a fresh spring of water where all around me, there was just muddy rivers or something. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I was doing um, I guess for quite some time now, I've been working in partnership with homeless service agencies on projects. And I came to that topic originally to look at social stigmas, um, looking at social exclusion and how that reduces relationships for people experiencing homelessness which in turn reduces identity. Um, and I've always thought that, you know, just if somebody loses their home, you know, they shouldn't also have to go through an identity crisis on top of that. Um, so that was what, you know, my interest in stigmas is what first led me to look at this stigma of homelessness. And as I started working on projects about that or with that, um, I became more and more exposed to like discourse around that social issue 
And, you know, that's that stigma runs really deep in this culture, but there's also this way that the responsibility for that issue is kind of offloaded on the individual. Um, and because we don't see housing as a universal provision, we have these shelters, these homeless shelters, which are these temporary kind of purgatorial systems that sometimes even replicate like punishment models. Um, and then we have people who own houses that it's in their material interests or it's against their material interests when a homeless shelter goes into their neighborhood because um, there's this idea that their property values will decrease. So it kind of pits, you know, unhoused individuals against people who own homes, but we all have the same need for housing. And so, you know, the solution isn't for these homeowners to give up their material interests, their homes, you know, this is often people's nest eggs. Um, and you can't take away from some people's needs to get other people's needs met as a way of, you know, offloading responsibility from the state to the individual. But so this is the thing that this was the thing that really was like a, a big realization for me. And this is what led me to Martha's work is I was, you know, it seems really obvious to look at this universal need for housing so that nobody is unhoused. You know, that's like just really obvious solution. Everybody needs a house. Um, but the reason we don't do that in the US, it's not because of lack of resources. It really comes down to a lack of will. And we don't want everyone to have housing because then like the quote unquote undeserving would also have housing. So we kind of want to decide, you know, be able to have control over who deserves these resources because of their ability to fit into the capitalistic values and these American values of independence and self-sufficiency. And so then, you know, Martha's work, obviously it like looks at this false binary between dependence and independence. And it shows us how misguided that type of framing is and how often like inside of a shelter, people will be treated, um, I guess, very people who are residents will be dehumanized quite a bit by just being part of that system. And it's like their, their basic needs will get met, but it comes at a cost. And there are many, many rules to follow. There's curfews. You have to ask, you know, ask permission to go outside to smoke in some shelters. And this reduction of autonomy, let's say, is not with the interest of the greater good. It's with the interest of keeping dependence invisible. So all the time in this culture, we just sweep dependence under the table. We push it aside. We just want these institutions to stay very opaque because this is an issue that really terrifies us. So yeah, I, I just was so inspired by the way that she really delves into these issues and reframes them and shows us the way forward. What are some ways that the art that you create makes dependence visible? Yeah, that's a nice way of saying it. Um, well, you know, I have like, I guess a couple different pathways in that I'm working with. One of those pathways is to look at service provision inside care institutions. And 
uh, I suppose make interventions in that system. I guess I could talk about particular artworks too. And then the other train is to look at community care, like what can happen outside of institutions. Um, and some of that looks like, uh, you know, it's it's trying to make dependence more visible, but it's also trying to persuade people to, like it's gently persuading people to care for each other or to at least acknowledge that there are needs in their community. So, I mean, I can talk about a few projects in particular if that is yeah, helpful. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear about your projects. Okay, so I guess one of the earlier ones was called Beauty and Transition, and this was a, a hair salon that I refurbished out of a truck, a box truck, and drove around to, um, to shelters, to temporary housing facilities, and would offer free hair care, but also kind of create this social space that people could be a part of, and hair obviously has a real tie to identity expression and um, and just having that ability to like look how you want is very it, it's just not possible in a shelter um, and also just having this face to face interaction with hairstylists and having that touch that is so needed um, there's just all sorts of ways that that project could activate different parts of identity that are being like you know narrowed down by that kind of experience and that way where we perceive homelessness with a lack of dignity um and then i as i was working on that project for on and off for a few years i was also becoming really aware of the social workers in in these systems and how they are also um <laughs> I guess their needs are also going unmet and they're quite overburdened. I mean, a lot of a lot of what ends up happening in the shelter is just that social workers will understand how they need or what the needs are, but they will be unable to meet those needs because of under-resourcing. You know, we like to keep our shelters real under-resourced in the US. We don't want to you know, give them too much money because, as I said before, this is kind of almost a form of punishment for people who have fallen out of this economic um, self-sufficiency. So, so yeah, I, I also wanted to do an intervention with the staff, and I ended up looking at kind of bringing these somatic therapies and theater methods into um, situations with staff and creating a workshop series where we would use these physical like nonverbal methods to bring up very difficult topics that they were working out out um, like burnout secondary trauma um, you know power differentials all this stuff that is like very very hard to talk about and loaded and also when you're kind of working in this fast-paced bureaucratic environment, there can often be this like black and white way to look at issues because there's just not time to deep dive into every single issue that comes up or even reflect about those issues. So the, I mean, the, the techniques themselves or the workshop itself was doing one thing, but the other priority of mine was to get these 
to happen during the paid workday for staff. So, you know, part of it was a challenge to the institution that actually to be sustainable, they needed to prioritize staff health and staff need in like that need to be integrated into the payment system, not just an individual responsibility to do that on your off time, you know, when you have free time and then you're responsible for not getting burned out with this work, even though, you know, this is, this is just too much of a burden to put on anyone um, to work like this around the clock with people who are just lost to society or forgotten by society. I mean, a lot of people in the shelter also, they need a lot of medical care. Um, You know, hospitals are, so this is like ties into the next phase of work, but hospitals are also just driven by a profit model. And so they won't have beds where people can just recover. Um, people without housing can recover. So they'll send them back to the shelter and then they'll need round the clock care, like nursing care, but they just have the staff at the shelter there. and They don't have time for that kind of care. So people kind of languish in these situations. And then everyone on the outside of those institutions will not <clears throat> at all um, empathize with the staff and or no. So it, it can be a really isolating experience for staff too, because they're overburdened and they're like, why doesn't anyone else care about this? So then the reason why I'm doing this, these projects as art is to also start a public dialogue about this. So, you know, Beauty and Transition and then the next one with staff, which is called Choreographing Care. These are projects that are meant to be shown outside of, they happen in person, the, the primary audience are people who are physically there and part of the project, but there's another audience they reach, which is people who are, you know, in the media, like it will be covered in news outlets. So that starts a different conversation. It is also kind of part of, you know, art, art audiences for whatever good that is. I'm starting to feel like that audience is pretty limited, but you know, there are, it does get that extension into like gallery and museum spaces to be discussed. So, whereas if I was just, um, I guess, well, there's also like, there's a lot to calling it art. I mean, I won't get into all the nitty gritty of it, but um, you know, it's, this is about looking at these problems from other angles that are not typically discussed and asking what if, like, what if we lived in a care centered society? What would that look like? Um, and so then, <clears throat> because healthcare is also so interwoven with these issues of, um, you know, housing or poverty and being accessible to people who are low income. Um, so I am starting to research healthcare and I'm doing a project now called Social Pharmacy, which is looking at, I'll, I'll go into different communities um, and then I'll find out what people are using for home remedies for all different types of health, for physical health, emotional, you know, mental, social. And then I create a kind of a free store in a way. And it, it looks, I mean, it's hard to describe it without showing you images, but 
because it doesn't look like a store. It's kind of, it's like made out of fabric. It's kind of luminescent. So it looks like it's there, but it's not there. And people can go into this space and take any remedy and learn about the person, learn about like how they are using this health regimen. And in exchange, they leave their own script for a new recipe for a remedy, which I then make and then add to the project. So in a way, it's like, it's a kind of transactional exchange. But in another way, it's like trying to extend this idea of like, I care for myself and looking at like how I can share my health with another person and how we can start um, also just like sharing knowledge. And in, I like this poetic idea of public health being a collaborative performance. So I also see this as you are performing another person's health regimen and you're kind of embodying that. And by doing that, you are psychically connected to this other person, at least a conscious of this other person that is a stranger in your community. And you're also leaving a script. You're like writing a script for another stranger to embody your own health regimen. So it's a way of kind of like playing with our need for independence. I mean, it's very hard for us to share with strangers without um, being really, really pushed to do that. So this is like kind of a gentle way to um, start to be aware of each other's needs. Uh, and then, but then doing that also just gently on our own terms, not forcing people to like go into each other's houses to care for each other, because that was the first, the project that I did before this was a kind of a mutual aid website called SOS system of support. Um, and it, this was a website where you could use it in any zip code in the U S you could post a need that you have and you could uh you could also post something that you were offering and so it's basically just a you know a mutual aid website with the intention that like anyone in any zip code is not just a super localized movement so it could be used by spaces where there aren't strong grassroots mutual aid organizations already happening um, and it also includes people who are unhoused because you don't need a, a, an address to register for this thing, which a lot of mutual aid um, types of, I guess, organizations or charity organizations, like you need a, a home address to find the resources in your area. So, but anyway, this, this project did not work because people, uh, I mean, it worked to some, some people used it, but it was not very widespread because it's too forceful to, imagine it's too utopian to imagine that someone would automatically care that there is a need in their proximity but it did bring up this dilemma where oh, this was what was interesting to me about the project was that it did bring up a dilemma where it's like okay now that i'm aware i see what these needs are um am i going to take the step to like bridge that distance and help someone? And also, am I gonna feel willing to post my own needs or even be aware of my own needs? Because I think we're also pretty conditioned because of this like independence mindset, we are very conditioned to ignore our own needs and not even feel like we have needs. Uh, so I think that's that project was not successful, but it was like, it did bring up some interesting questions for me. And yeah, so that's where I'm at now.
That's really interesting. I love the idea of public health as a collaborative performance. <laughs> Thanks. Going back to your first project, what contributes, do you think, to the normalization of punishment instead of support for a lack of economic self-sufficiency? And what other models or responses do you imagine? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I do think we as a society are looking for scapegoats because the system is not working, you know, and the healthcare system is not working. Housing is more and more unaffordable. It's harder and harder to survive here economically. And when we really look at those systems, it's terrifying when we actually acknowledge that it's terrifying so we have to imagine that people end up who end up in a dependent you know economically dependent are there because they deserve to be there and they've done something wrong to be there so that's that's a kind of a I feel like it's due to being in the state of cognitive dissonance. We have to do these like mental backflips within a state of cognitive dissonance to try to keep going on with our lives without just, you know, being so paralyzed by what's happening around us. So I do feel like it's a kind of, um, it's a social phenomenon that punishment model but it's also it's um, a perceptual kind of an issue and if we i do think if we had more provisions that were secure and guaranteed we had a, a more firm social safety net then we wouldn't actually have these stigmas we wouldn't actually like punish people who are having issues. I mean, a lot of people that I meet in the shelters, they had, they started off like with a couple of jobs, they got sick, they got some kind of chronic illness or cancer or something. They went in for treatment. They had insurance through their jobs. So they went in for some treatment, but because their treatment was taking time off of work, they would lose their jobs. Or they just, even if they weren't fired, they wouldn't be able to keep working. So there would be this mutual way, well, I guess we'll just uh, take a hiatus and not work anymore. And then they lose their insurance because of that. And then they fall into medical debt, they lose their housing. I mean, it's just a chain of events that is, it makes no sense to me how we could possibly think that person is at fault in some way. Um, for getting there, but because it's such a common story and it's just, that is how our system is set up. So you better hope that nothing bad happens to you. And even for people with insurance, you know, the deductibles or the co-pays, they can be really confusing. <clears throat> they can be, I don't think any American, uh, you know, living has today has ever, I don't think any American has not been surprised by medical bill at some point, <laughs> you know? And well, this was an interesting conversation I had with Martha too, where she brought up the 
structural, the difference between like the structural provisions of care and the emotional connections of care. So I think when we're thinking about hospitals or when we're thinking about homeless shelters, um, you know, do those spaces have, are they able to provide the structural provisions of care? Is a shelter able to provide a, a bed, heating, food, you know, these things? Um, is a hospital able to provide, you know, scans and treatments and, you know, these types of things? And who, well, shelters obviously are very under-resourced, like I mentioned, and hospitals, they, do have the structural provisions of care, but those are often withheld for people with private insurance, people who are uninsured, or even people on Medicaid are really given the shaft with treatments. Um, and then there's the emotional connection of care, which is just completely lacking for in these spaces. And it's like rare if you get a social worker or, you know, um, somebody working in a hospital who is really emotionally sympathetic and and caring and connects with you and that's even if you do have great insurance that's really rare and so it's pretty common for people to go in in a crisis and then have their trauma be exacerbated by these systems so that's true with hospitals it's true with shelters you're going into these spaces in a crisis in the worst times of your life. And then your trauma is being exacerbated because there is many reasons, but that overburdening, you know, because hospitals are driven by a profit model because shelters are this kind of last, you know, re resource in a, you know, they're seen as a kind of a last resort, I guess. So I think I use the word punishment uh, in a way, maybe it's not appropriate to use the word punishment completely, but there's this way, uh, maybe a neglect or just a lack of emotional response, um, and a lack of compassion for, for people who are in these situations because of all those reasons. And then the solution forward I mean, it's so easy. You can't even, I mean, it's just universal healthcare and universal housing. That's just, I mean, look at the urban blight. Look at all the empty storefronts we have in every city. There are resources. We do have resources. It is possible, but we don't do it because we're so stuck on this idea that, well, we don't want people to just leech off the system. Well, we don't want to support a bunch of freeloaders. So you know, in my work, I also do, I am interested in looking at people as full people to kind of humanize this, you know, people's experiences, because it's, it's kind of sad that you have to even do that, because no one is two dimensional. But I think it's kind of sadly needed that we need to, you know, look at people as full humans that are all deserving of care and all deserving of comfort and, and human rights are not just basic bare necessities. Human rights are, we do need social inclusion. We do need care. We need, we need to touch. We need to be touched. Like these things are part of living in a dignified way. And we do not prioritize that in the society.
we're almost out of time. Um, so I just have one more question for you and then I'll, I'll let you go. Do you find that the way people talk or think about these issues changes as they interact with your art? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I definitely feel like people who are physically part of that project do change for sure. I have seen that before. They have a perspective shift. And I think that with the choreographing care and beauty and transition, you know, people would, um, well, like, so in the salon, you know, people who were getting their hair done and also the social workers, they would both change. And also the, um, the social workers, the hairstylists and the people getting there, you know, and the clients, they would all have a shift of perspective. And I think that when someone is treating you like you're worthless um, and that happens over and over again or judging you, then you start to internalize that. And so that's how it worked with some of the clients in this experience. Like this was a kind of humanizing experience, let's say. And for the hairstylists, they were maybe having some abstract fears about what it means to work with a person who's unhoused and to touch a person who's unhoused. You know, there's tons of like just abstract fears about that when you're thinking about it, when you haven't had experience with that. So they absolutely changed. I mean, a lot of people at first wanted to wear gloves or wanted to protect themselves by wearing like, you know, protective gear and gloves because they were afraid to touch. Um, and then you would just see this over and over within the first few seconds people's gloves would go off and they would just really realize oh this is just a human it's just a person um and then i think and then also the social workers would change their perception because they did not see their clients in this way they didn't get this side of them because this is a very serious you know situation it's it's full of suffering it's full of loss so they would see this side of people that was experiencing the loss and suffering but they wouldn't see that full personality come out and so this was also a kind of a it wasn't just about like being a passive receiver of of hairstyling this was it's hard to describe but it really was a kind of active like fun like social experience and so it did bring out a different side of people so then if you're thinking of the social worker as an audience they would also kind of change their perception about how they were seeing their clients and seeing their full personalities. And in choreographing care, I did have a lot of instances where social workers would start to see their own needs differently, their, own, their colleagues as also having needs and not just having it all together. You know, you can look at somebody else and be like, well, they're so stoic. They just always have it together. Um, and so it would start to change those relationships a bit. And as far as, oh, and then social pharmacy, well, who, let's see what happens because this is a new project. I've done it um, a little bit. It's, it's getting, it's still ongoing and it's going to have another iteration soon. And so I'm very curious to see how people will start to relate to each other or if it will just be kind of an individual consciousness thing that I won't really be aware of how people's perceptions are changing. But and then at, with the documentation of these projects or how they see other audience or how other audiences see them, I I don't know, because that's a mediated experience. So it's always 
a little more removed and when people have a very strong um, opinion about something then it's pretty hard to change that opinion when it, you're just seeing a video or like hearing about a mediated story so maybe it reaches people who are like more in the gray area don't have a real strong ideology yet or could be convinced but i don't think it's gonna change people's minds that just are firmly believing that people who are unhoused deserve to be punished you know or have done something wrong yeah well thank you so much for your time jody this has been really interesting i've learned mm -hmm. so much about this particular type of art um, and it's it's wonderful to see that you're doing this in the community it sounds like your work really is transformative Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can follow us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.